My guest on this episode of The Literary Life is Jonathan Escoffrey. His brilliant debut collection of Link short stories has just been published, long-listed for the National Book Award and enjoying rave notices from writers all across the literary spectrum. Kaleidoscopic, urgent, hilarious, revelatory, and like nothing you've read before, these are the stories that we never believed could be told until Jonathan Escoffrey told them, says Marlon James. Set mainly in Miami, Jonathan minds his own history as he tells the story of a Jamaican family dealing with the complicated issues of race, family, and identity. My conversation with Jonathan took place right before his celebratory reading at a packed books and books, which included his family and friends. Jonathan, welcome uh, to The Literary Life. It's really thrilling to have you as a guest. Thank you so much for, for having me. Um, it's a real honor to be here speaking with you. And it's an exciting week. Congratulations on your long list for the National Book Award. Thank you. It's uh, it's the thing you dare to dream about. <laughs> and um, yeah, I kind of can't believe it's, it's happening. And um, it's been a good week, as you said. Well, you know, this, I, I, I read your book and... I don't think I've moved, been moved by a collection of stories as much recently as If I Survive You. So many of them just took my breath away. And I know that it's been a long and winding road for you to the publication of this book. And much of that road led through Miami or started in Miami. Would you talk a little bit about that? I would definitely say it started in Miami. Um, I was an undergrad at uh, FIU. And I began taking my first creative writing workshops uh, right over there with um, wonderful professors like John Dufresne, Lynn Barrett, uh, Campbell McGrath. And uh, I also took a lot of wonderful literature courses, um, one of which was a Harlem Renaissance class that led me to really important works for me, including um, Langston Hughes, his essay, uh, The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain. And I think prior to to reading that um, essay, I was somebody who wasn't really sure what his subject matter was. And I was trying to figure out who my protagonists were going to be. Oftentimes they were very much these blank slate characters who didn't acknowledge their own identities, largely because I didn't know what their identities were. Um, I grew up reading a lot of um, books that were really wonderful for stirring my imagination, but that didn't necessarily talk about identity in a way that I was living through my own identity and living in the body that I have as a, as a six, three, 200 plus pound black man. And, um, when it came to reading, uh, Hughes and, um, Nella Larson and Claude McKay and, and all of these wonderful authors who were talking about their experiences, uh, as black people in America, um, it really, helped me understand that you get to that wonderful 
universal human experience through the specific. And I don't think I had quite grasped that until then. And I was able to um, start making strides towards excavating my own lived experience on the page and, and getting to that in some of these workshops. Much of what I'm talking about also, that road that came through Miami and the road that you were exploring and excavating and that life was also set in Miami. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, so I always wondered how I was going to have a compelling plot that a reader would be able to follow along with um, without being able to talk about some of the nuances of our city as a as this uh, multicultural landscape as I, I don't know if we talk about race here in the same way that it's talked about in the rest of the country in a way. Um, it's there, there are so many wonderful immigrant populations here that will oftentimes keep alive the attitudes of their countries. Not all of those attitudes are, are, are wonderful, but they are nuanced and they are things that I found I had to grapple with in, in the book if I wanted to be honest about my lived experience and what, what, what Miami meant to me and what it meant to be the son of Jamaican parents growing up in Miami. And um, for me, I, I had a problem as an author figuring out, well, how do you bring that to the page? How do you render these characters in, in this um, realistic way? And so for my main protagonist, Chelani, I made that problem for me as the author, his problem in a sense, because he is looking for belonging and he's, he's grappling with ideas about his own identity. And he is being pushed and pulled in different directions in terms of whether he is being perceived as, as, as black and as um, at times he's being perceived as a more multiracial character, at times he is trying to lean into his Jamaicanness so that he can, in a sense, recapture what he thinks he lost when his parents made the decision to leave Jamaica and settle in Miami. And I, you know, I've asked myself similar questions in terms of, well, what if my parents never left Jamaica and came to the U.S.? In, in the late 1970s and what if I were, were never born here and wouldn't, you know, I've, I've, I've spent some time back in Jamaica and the middle class Jamaicans uh, of my own generation, you know, they seem oftentimes so settled in uh, just who they are and in their identity and in um, their, their kind of ownership over their experience. Well, to that end, I mean, one of the stories, your mom, it's not your mom, but a woman playing Trelawney's mom right. in the book says when she goes back to Jamaica, mm -hmm. she talks about that very thing, about how she felt a sense of peace being in Jamaica mm -hmm. in the most violent time of right. Jamaica. Right. She said she was freed from the um, weight, <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing She says myself. she can finally breathe now. Yes, she can finally breathe now. And that's something that I felt honestly when I was in Jamaica. Um, my, my, my experience 
you know, getting off the plane, stepping out into uh, the airport in Montego Bay, I never felt more American. I felt, what is this place, you know? But after a week, 10 days, suddenly I found myself breathing easier. You know, the eyes that were on me, they weren't uh, judging in the same way. Well, you say it really beautifully. You say uh, she feels freed by the privilege of relative racelessness. Exactly. The privilege of relative racelessness. Right, right. And that's something that that I felt um, when I was in Jamaica. Uh, the thing that I think is important to also acknowledge, though, is that she feels, part of the reason she feels that privilege, yes, she's black in a predominantly black country, um, but at the same time, she's a lighter-skinned, uh, you know, black woman, and and she was also born there. And she was born there. And she was born there. And so, and she was born into, you know, she not into wealth certainly, but with a certain amount of security. And I think that you know, class is at play, colors at play, and 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 we have to acknowledge that as well. Most definitely. And what's really interesting as well about what you do, particularly even in the very first story, the very first story of the collection, which is called In Flux, where you talk about the opposite of that by being a Jamaican born here, mm-hmm. as, as you were, and as mm-hmm. Trelawney is as well. Right. And the, the, the focus on race <laughs> right. that that Trelawney found going into school, for instance. Mm -hmm. And it's so nuanced in Miami that it even has to do with the neighborhood that you go to school in, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, Hurricane Andrew displaces you further north as opposed to living south. Yeah. I mean, something that was interesting that I experienced after Hurricane Andrew, we actually moved up to Miramar, so we were kind of right on the border there of North Miami. Um, but we were technically in Broward County and I wound up going to a school that had, uh, the population was the, the, the two largest populations were the Puerto Rican kids and the Jamaican kids. And I had, uh, I do write about this in the book. I, I, I will give that, that disclaimer, this book is fiction, but, but I was kind of embraced by these Puerto Rican kids because all the Puerto Rican kids were my color, basically, and we, we, we kind of were, uh, in a sense, these things looked alike, essentially. And when they realized that I was Jamaican, though, and when I realized that, you know, uh, people were, in a sense, grouping up and putting themselves in these groups... Um, it was this really uh, jarring moment, I, I would say, where I, I tried to get along with the Jamaican kids and they were kind of like, "We, you don't actually look like us and you don't sound like us. And they would give me these little tests. They would say, okay, name a place in Jamaica that's not Kingston, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and right, then, right. and as you find yourself actually trying to pass the test, you realize you've already kind of lost this test because you, you're never going to be able to answer enough questions to actually satisfy the people. And I think that's what the, 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 especially the first story, but a lot of what the book is about in terms of people saying to Chilani, what are you? And he answers and they're kind of like, well... We're not sure we believe you. And how would you describe, I mean, I describe it as a series of interconnected stories. Yes. 
that that move the character along, the, the main character being Trelawney. Right. And it moves him along. And you learn a lot about the other characters, your brother, mm-hmm. you know, your... Uh, I guess it's your cousin as well. Was mm-hmm. it your cousin? Trelawney's cousin. <laughs> Trelawney's cousin. And Trelawney's father and Trelawney's mother. Right. And so you learn all about those characters, but each story stands by itself. Right. Right. And I set out to honestly write a novel in which all of the chapters were standalones because I thought I was just going to write the perfect book. <laughs> and I thought I was going to become a genius along the way writing the book <laughs> and and um the more i thought of it as a novel the more uh i kind of fell apart as as a writer i it, it was so stressful uh it was too i set the bar impossibly high i think for myself and it, it wasn't until i took a step back and started to explore the characters through standalone stories just thinking i'm gonna write one story i'm gonna try to make it one good story and then I uh, came back after I noticed that I had a, a series of stories. And then I thought, well, this is a book. And let me see how I can put it back together again. Not necessarily as a novel, but as a, a kind of world that's working together. And it's really propulsive because yes. it really you really want to find out what happens to all of these characters yeah, in one way good. or another. And you're also a, a master of story titles too oh thank you because the story titles themselves starting with in flux under the aki tree odd jobs pestilence splashdown independent uh, living if he suspected he'd get someone killed this morning uh delano would leave would never leave his couch (laughs) and then the last (laughs) title story if i survive you they are just really really Terrific. Right. So this road took you from Miami and you went off to graduate school, right? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I left Miami. I should say to back up, I discovered these characters while I was applying to grad school. And so um, Delano and Trelawney and Topper were born out of a very short story that I wound up submitting to a few places, including the University of Minnesota, where I wound up attending the MFA program in fiction. And so I packed up my car and wound up driving the uh, 2,000 whatever, (laughs) however many miles to uh, Minneapolis, to the Twin Cities. A very cold place. A very cold (laughs) place, especially for a Miami native, yes. And you write about that well. But then you also call on some of that experience, which makes its way into the book, which was so very different from your Miami experience. It was, and I think having that distinct experience in the Midwest, uh, in the upper Midwest, Minneapolis in particular, it really helped me view Miami in a, in a different way. And I should say view my specific experiences in Miami differently because I just, I, I noticed how people responded to me very differently in, in, in the Midwest in a sense. And I, and I don't, I'm not saying one experience as good and one experience as bad. It was just, it was very different. The thing, the things people said were different or the assumptions they made were, were, were different. And I I wanted to kind of capture that. I wanted to capture what I had lived in Miami in a sense, the story in flux. I started working that working on that story in a, it was actually a creative nonfiction class and an essay writing class in which unfortunately my professor had had a fall and the grad students were kind of left to our own devices to 
teach ourselves, which, you know, we were teaching undergrads anyway. And you guys became very friendly in that class, right? You had a group of writers. Was it that class? Well, where, actually, I should met I should, Dariel. Well, I met Dariel actually in uh, undergrad. It was, oh, in, in, it was in John Dufresne's class, gotcha. uh, his workshop. And So you're talking about at University I'm of talking Minnesota? At, yeah, University of Minnesota. So my writing sample, I worked on that with Dariel and our other friend, Fausto Barrio, Barrio Nuevo, we were all working on our, our MFA applications and we all got into our, our different programs um, and, and they remain really wonderful friends to this day. Um, but I, I, I started trying to explore that Miami experience basically three years after I'd left Miami and, and I had explored it through other stories. Um, the, the long sentence titled story, uh, if he suspected he'd get himself, uh, get someone killed this morning. So yeah, even I, uh, stumble when I try to <laughs> say it without reading it. But um, I, for me, the exploration of identity was the story. And it was the heart of the story, even as these bigger um, external events are, are happening, you know, and, and big things happen in the book in terms of, you know, splashdown, for example. Yeah, well, that I, I was going to get to that in a little bit. <laughs> But Splashdown was kind of amazing. And I mean, I'm blown away by that story. I mean, because there's class, there's poverty, mm-hmm. there's homelessness. Right. You're dealing with all of those issues mm-hmm. of, you know, what it's like to become from a broken home and what all those things mean. Right, right. Um, but the Splashdown story, without giving any spoiler alerts or any spoilers, can you talk a little bit about that story? That story just sure. blew me away when I read it. The story is about a character named Cookie and his relationship with his father named Ox. And Mm -hmm. Cookie meets Ox for the first time when he turns 13, um, the summer he turns 13. And that is taking place in the Florida Keys. And it's a story about uh, a son's kind of obsession with understanding who his father is. Because his father took off. His father took off when he was a baby. Right. And um, the story states, you know, all he was left with, all Cookie was left with, was the dried ink on his birth certificate, birth record. Yeah. And so um, he, at 13, is trying to figure out, well, is he going to be able to rekindle, or I shouldn't say rekindle, but is he going to be able to build a relationship with his father? Is he going to be able to build trust and ever, ever believe that his father will come through for him? Uh, there's a moment early in the story where they go out on Ox's boat and Ox is about to teach him how to trap lobster. And he, Cookie that is, is swimming and he's imagining to himself that he might try to sink to the ocean floor just so he could see if his father would rescue him. And I think, you know, much of the story and much of the decisions that Cookie winds up making in the story is kind of about that. Will my father come through for me in my time of need? And we see how that plays out. We do. And I I have to tell you, all of you, you're going to be in for a a gut punch when you read that story. And, but, but Cookie is also part of this part of Trelawney's world, right? right? Right. Cookie is Trelawney's cousin and he does appear in another story uh, titled Pestilence, when they're children and they're preparing the house to uh, try to see if the house can withstand Hurricane Andrew. They don't know how serious this storm is going to be. But also that story is about, you know, it's about boyhood and 
it's also about, in a sense, the lessons we learn from our fathers. There's a moment where all of the boys and, the, and uh, Chalani and Delano's father are in a car and they're taking their pet dog to the vet uh, to, to, to basically have him neutered, but they have this moment where they're trying to decide if this is the right thing to do. And uh, essentially, the older brother, Delano, says, I'd rather be dead than have my balls chopped off. And, and Topper kind of, you know, Topper, who's the one who's supposed to be the wise one, says that's what makes a man a man, you know, essentially the implication being his, his balls are what make him a man. So they, and they call off the neutering. And they call off the neutering. And, and, and then we see what happens. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, and, and, but in that moment, Chalani, you know, he doesn't know how to respond. He senses something is a little bit off that maybe... You know, there that maybe there's more to be in a man, but he also wants to um, fit. He wants to be caught up in the love that he notices between his older brother and his father. That he somehow isn't quite, or at least he doesn't feel he's quite caught up in himself. The thing about Trelawney that was so appealing is he he's 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 living in a virtual hurricane. I mean, his whole life. It's right. not just Hurricane Andrew, but. Mm-hmm. There are things happening left and right, right. family breakups, you know, things going on, a, a, a constant sense of not having enough, not having right. enough money, wondering where it's going to come from, a father that you couldn't necessarily rely on all the time, an older brother that often felt like he was only out for himself, right? <laughs> you know, in <laughs> right. that sense. Um, but the thing about it was he's so self-aware mm-hmm. of these things. You've created an amazing character in literature that, you know, that is so internal mm-hmm. and not just external where things are happening to him. Mm-hmm. What other characters in literature do you see Trelawney as being somewhat like or some of the reading that influenced you? That's a really good question. Um... I mean, I, 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 I did mention this author, but I didn't mention her protagonist because um, Nella Larson's, uh, I think her protagonist is Helga Crane. I might be getting that a little wrong, but she has this experience where she is teaching. Um, this is, first of all, taking place in the 1920s, and she's teaching in the, in the South, and there, and she's a biracial black and white woman. And she's having one kind of experience uh, that she's very much aware of. But then she goes to Chicago. She goes to Harlem. She goes to travel abroad to Europe where she meets some, some distant family there. And in each of these locations, she's having a very different experience. She's having people respond to her, her body, to her physicality, her present, the way she presents or um, the, the way they perceive her presentation, I suppose. And, um, I, I, she's she's to me such a wonderful character because she's so able to uh, unpack what's happening to her, but she also can't necessarily change what's happening to her, and she can make decisions to you know leave or stay, but you know her options are limited to that. I'm gonna have to read that because that's mm-hmm. Trelawney. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a large extent, he's unpacking all of this, yes. but he can't change it. Necessarily. Yeah, and I should say the name of that uh, novel, or sometimes it's called the novella, is Quicksand. Nella Larson's Quicksand. Tell me about your parents, and and you know how much of this is actually based on them, 
and how much of them is an extension of who they were. Yeah, I you know I definitely could not have written these stories had um, had I not had the the parents that I had the the very Jamaican parents that I had. Um, their trajectories are are very similar to Sonia and Toppers, who are the parents in, in If I Survive You. Uh, they did leave the nineteen uh, sorry they did leave Kingston in the nineteen seventies. Uh, there was a, a short stop in Texas before coming to Miami. I was actually born in Texas. and um, Talk about what, what was happening in the 1970s in Jamaica, which caused... Yeah, the yeah. So um, for much of the 1970s, uh, well, Michael Manley came into power and he had a more socialist agenda than uh, Jamaica had ever seen. Jamaica had gained independence from England Um you know, maybe 10 years before that. And there was this panic in a sense among the middle class because of a lot of the rhetoric that he was using. Um, Retrospectively, from my point of view, it seemed like a lot of what he was saying was that they wanted to help the poor, which is, you know, a really simplified uh, kind way of looking at his message. Um, at the same time, he was buddying up with Fidel Castro. And so that concerned a lot of people. That concerned a lot of the uh, middle class, upper middle class, and wealthy in Jamaica. That also concerned people in the U.S. <laughs> it concerned a lot of people. And um, at the same time, uh, his political uh, opponent, Edward Tiaga, um, didn't seem to be very interested in helping poor people at all. <laughs> and so um, I, I don't think that a, a lot of the people who felt um, they had a stake in Jamaica, I, I don't think they felt that they had very good options. But what happened around that was that you would have these political figures um, who, and I don't necessarily mean the prime ministers, but the people working under them would adopt these uh, ghettos essentially. Um, and they would have different names and you would know, you know, this particular community is a PNP, People's National Party, you know, community. And this is JLP over here, um, uh, Jamaica Labor Party. And they would say, we need you all to go out and vote our way and we will, um, you know, build a little schoolhouse or we'll install plumbing or we'll do a, a particular thing. And uh, these parties, in a sense, these these communities would, would go out and vote, and you know the, the majority would just go out and, and do what they were asked to do, hoping that that would benefit their community. Um, but then there were the forces behind that that would stir up actual violence between these these communities, and that happened for you know as, as for as long as Jamaica was independent, but. There were other factions bringing in a lot of drugs and a lot of guns and um, a brief history of seven killings of Marlon James. It it, it gives a really wonderful account of how that happened Uh, based on all of the stories I grew up with from my parents' stories. Uh, it's it's very similar, but there's also there's there are accounts from including from CIA operatives uh, 
in terms of exactly what their mission was in terms of trying to get Michael Manley out basically and uh, make sure another island, another country in the United States backyard didn't turn communist. So you came, your parents came, you were born in Houston and then they settled in Miami. Right, correct. After that. Right. But your brother was born in, in Jamaica, Jamaica. Yes. And he was older. Correct, was. yes. Was your dad, was your dad a... Was he involved in construction? Uh, if there's a one parallel with my father and his life in Jamaica, was that my father and and he he uh, he died a month ago. I know. I, and, I was gonna. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's 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 just interesting to to think about my father and this line, lineage in in general. I wrote a story under the Aki tree, which is told from the father's point of view in right. the book, and. Long before my father passed, that story, it started breaking my heart. It's a story I can't read uh, without crying, you know, at some point in that story, just thinking about my grandfather and then my father, and they're both gone. Um, but something my grandfather told my father, uh, my father wanted to be a chef. And he was told by his father that that was woman's work. And he never, and he took that to heart and he never, he never explored that. My father was a wonderful cook, you know, but, um, I, that always stuck with me and my, and my, you know, credit to my mother, she'd always say, you know, your father should have done that and you don't let those kinds of messages deter you. And but so they were also encouraging of your writing as well. They, 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 they were to a large extent. My, my mother, I think because she comes from a family in which, her uncle, my uncle Alvin, Alvin Marriott, was a sculptor in Jamaica. And if you go to National Stadium in Jamaica, in, in Kingston, uh, he is the he's the person who um, created the Bob Marley statue that's right in front of the stadium. Wow. And he also did one of the runners, which is maybe, uh, it's at least 20 feet tall. It's, it's incredible. Wow. I always forget the athlete's name, so I, I, I am sorry about that. I could always send that afterwards. But uh, and he got he got um, honors from from England from the from the crown. You know, he he was he was a serious artist. And I think because my my mother grew up knowing that there were artists in the family, there was a kind of um, encouragement. She she did still want me to be able to feed myself. <laughs> <laughs> but she she definitely always encouraged my my writing. My dad was a very pragmatic uh, man, and it wasn't until later in his life that he started to actually see me on my journey and and gaining some successes over time that he really started to. Support. And did he get to see the book? He got he to see the galley, or sorry, he got to see the ark, which is the one that has the cover on it, and it's it's largely. Um, like the the hardcover uh, design, and he got to hold that. Oh, yeah, had this, he read this past any of summer. the stories before? He, I, I think he read under the Aki tree. Um, he, I, I, that's when he knew things were were starting to take off. When the Paris Review published under the Aki tree, and then it won the Plimpton Prize. And he told everybody he knew whether they would know what the Paris Review is or not. He would say, my son is in the Paris Review. <laughs> That's great. The one thing that I really appreciated as a Miamian was how careful you were with Miami landscape and Miami directions. And, you know, you, you were absolutely spot on with talking about Miami in a way that was so truthful 
Can you speak to that a little bit? Did you have to, you had been away for a while. Did you have to do any, did you have to reacquaint yourself with Miami at all in order to Every once there? in a while I, I would uh, hop online and, and double check the the map just to make sure I, uh, I was getting roads correct. Um, or, I mean, there's a lot of mining of my memory uh, more than that. But I think in terms of getting Miami correct, I was a little bit nervous to talk about some of Miami's issues in terms of uh, there's there's a scene where uh, Trelawney, it's kind of it's kind of told. So I, I don't know if it's quite a scene, but it's Trelawney recounting what's happened at the Thanksgiving uh, table with his girlfriend and his his, his girlfriend's mother. His girlfriend's name's uh, Jelly, and she, his mo- her mother. Jelly's she's Cuban American, right? and she's Cuban American. Well, Jelly's Cuban American, right? And um, her mother insists on pointing at Trelawney every time she <laughs> says the word black, <laughs> and she says, you know, to her sister, uh, you know, it's like calling the the the. the pot teapot calling what is what's the saying the 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 pot calling the kettle black calling the kettle black right i I should remember my own writing better um and uh you know or or if it were burnt the skin would be black and she points at him and i had you know that's one of those experiences that I, i more or less had and um but you know i think it's important to talk about these things if we're ever going to move past them and, and, and uh, like address them and get better in a sense. There was this tiny bit of nervousness though, thinking, well, am I, am I telling on Miami and am I telling on my friends and my friend's parents and my parents for that matter? Am, am I letting these secrets out? Well, you've been on the road now for a little while. Mm-hmm. How have people been responding to the Miami of it all? And how have people been responding to the nuance of uh, discussion about race and class mm-hmm. and all of that, are you finding it different in different cities that you go to? I well, the first thing I'll say is I was nervous to come down here in a sense to to talk to Miamians about my writing about Miami. Uh, so far, so good, <laughs> but being on the road, um, you know, whether in Boston or, or, or Brooklyn, where, wherever people are always going to have their own experiences of some kind of exclusion, I think. And I think that's a thing that people can really identify with and they can understand when something is uh, wrong and especially when it's pointed out to them. And I, I think what I enjoyed most about writing the book is being kind of able to point out things that might go unheard or unseen or un- underexamined. Well, you're a truth teller in this book. I mean, yeah. part of what you're doing is being honest right. about what you went through and not only you, but hundreds of thousands of other people go right. through. Right. And I think, you know, it's the, the, the only thing I always find when I'm outside of Miami, no matter where I am, trying to explain Miami to people, they usually are, are you know, they have their own view of Miami in a very right. funny kind of way. It's a very one-dimensional approach to what Miami is. Well, that's another thing I, I really thought was important about exploring this idea. I, I, it's I used to think about the book in terms of my desire to give a f- fuller look at this family of Jamaicans who might otherwise 
be, I don't know, flattened, I guess, by other people's perceptions of them. When I say that, I mean, sometimes I find myself in conversations with people who they may learn that my parents are Jamaican, I'm Jamaican American, and they'll say, oh, I love Jamaica. You know, I went to Sandals <laughs> and, you know, I, I spent that week on the beach. I love Bob Marley. I love Bob Marley. <laughs> hey, do you smoke ganja? Hey, man, that, like that kind of thing. And I wanted to move beyond that. But something that is um, occurring to me as well is, is growing up in Miami, I, I often had that sense that, you know, a, lot, a large part of the economy down here is tourism. And, you know, I've, I've worked in hotels, I've worked out on Miami Beach myself, but I wanted to go beyond that, you know, because people do have that glitzy, glammy perception that Miami is South Beach. And, you know, no, no disrespect to South Beach, but people, you know, even those people who are paid and make a living working on South Beach as dancers and people who are part of that nightlife as their livelihood, they also still have to go home to families. And yeah, still have and the, there aren't a lot of people writing about Cutler Ridge, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, oh, thank you for that. I mean, that was another thing. I, I, I almost wondered, I, 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 in earlier drafts of some of these stories, I, I didn't even know if I should write Cutler Ridge, you know, should I say, you know, Trelawney at one point he says, he writes his name Trelawney of Cutler Ridge. <laughs> and I, I, it was really empowering to write those words on the pages. Yeah, no, I remember teaching in that area. It was called the Ridge, actually, yeah, a yeah. lot of that area. And there was a large Jamaican community that lived there. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, you know, that is Miami. Miami is so different than what people usually imagine Miami being. Uh, Absolutely. It's it's not the South Beach of LeBron James talking about, I'm going <laughs> to South Beach. It's a very nuanced, complicated place. Right. And you, Jonathan, have captured it so very beautifully. It's, um, it's such an important, it's such an important work, you know, because it not only, I think, gives voice to what you went through, but it gives voice to so many other people who've had to navigate their way through all of these issues. Mm -hmm. And, and I, wanna, I wanna give a shout out to the discussion that you have throughout the book on, on class and poverty and the, you know, the sense of people just not having enough. Right, right. That's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a major thing. It's something uh, I experienced as a, a younger person in terms of, you know, wondering. Because th here's the thing, if you live check to check, at some point you're going to miss a check and you're going to be wondering how do I pay rent or how do I you know, make decisions between groceries and rent and making a lot of uh, difficult decisions. And I, I wanted to write about that. And um, I read a review that came out today in the Miami New Times and um, it, it kind of talked about that fact of uh, timeliness with the housing crisis that we are living through and you know it's it's like yes yeah it's like there are many people like Trelawney living in their cars right exactly in the free parking that work gives them right exactly it's exactly. pretty astonishing you know when you think about that a college educated kid mm -hmm. you know who can't find work that's going to give them a living wage right right absolutely and we're I mean it's something we're 
going to have to deal with uh, at some point. I'm living in California now, and I mean, the, the people living in their cars is, is everywhere. They're, they're lining the blocks. And Are you teaching now out there? Or? So I am a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University, which does have a degree of teaching if you so choose. <laughs> and so I have, um, so far, I've picked up um, a class here or there teaching. Um, I, I taught a wonderful class for Stanford medical students, which was just an amazing experience. But my, you know, my favorite experience so far has been mentoring an undergraduate student who I have this brilliant student who is a stand-up comic slash writer, and she's so funny in her in her stories. And I just know we're going to be hearing her name. Uh, I, I don't want to put the pressure on her, so I won't say her name, but I know we will be hearing her name. Oh, what a future. gift. Yeah. How long is the fellowship for? It's for two years, so I have one more year ahead of me. The requisite question that's always a hard one for writers to... To, to answer but so what's happening now now after this book what do you hope to do what are what are some of the what are some of the avenues you want to go down you know writing wise writing wise uh i'm working on a novel i have signed a contract that says i do owe people a novel <laughs> i'm having fun with it and I, I keep uh i keep joking with my my publishers about that sort of thing but story ideas keep popping up into my head uh, as a California, um, I don't know, as someone who is in love with LA, I have to admit, I'm living in the Bay Area, but I spent two years prior to moving up to, up moving up for Stanford. Um, I'm also a graduate student in the PhD program at USC, and my LA experience um, has been just so wonderful and um when you're in LA and you tell someone you're a writer, they get very excited. They assume you mean for television, <laughs> but even though you tell them you write books or stories, they're still very excited for you. No, anyway. there's a really nice writing community there. There isn't is. There? there is. Do you think you might write for film or television at some I, point? I think I see it going that way, and I should I should leave it there because I don't want to get ahead of myself. No, well, you have a lot to say, and I think you have a a, a remarkable career. Uh, that's already established, and I can't wait to hear more from you. Would you read a little bit from... Sure. So I'm going to read from the title story, and I'll just be reading a short section from the beginning. This is a version of how it ends. Your father stands below you on the algae-stained steps of your childhood home, muttering, he's killing me. He says this of your brother, your delinquent roommate. His sideburns flicker like crow's wings as hot air sifts Mount Trashmore's stench through the sloping yard. It's 2012, December, late in the year for the landfill's funk to carry on the wind, plating Cutler Bay in putridity. You suspect your brother hasn't paid rent in years, testing the limits of his position as family favorite, but now, your father tells you, me can't pay mortgage here and on my house. You want to remind him that here is also his house and that as you faithfully paid your share of the rent since moving back in two years ago, doesn't he mean to say, I can't pay one and a half mortgages? Instead, you say, so, adding, kick him out. You're surprised at how quickly guilt flips your stomach inside out. 
Delano is, after all, the person who took you into this house when living out of your car became untenable after your father kicked you out of his Palmetto Bay residence. Though he stopped confiding in you, it's clear that your brother has been consumed by depression, to say nothing of his external troubles, which arrive in part via mail from the county clerk's office. Last year, one of his workers died in a freak accident, and a civil suit soon followed. He's still waiting to learn if his liability insurance will cover that. For these reasons, he has your sympathy. Still, your brother of late seems intense on destroying what's yours, your home, your relationships, your mental stability. So kick him out is not wholly unreasonable. Your father seems not to notice that you've spoken at all and says, what if you buy the house from me? Which sounds to you a lot like, what if this became exclusively your problem? He quickly follows with an exact cash price. It's a small sum for a house, you admit. More than fair. Too reasonable, really. $11,698 even. No thanks. It's the obvious answer. Why else would it fall from your mouth with so little assistance from your brain? You suspect there's a host of ills pushing the townhouse along the path toward condemnation, but the layman's diagnosis is this. Your childhood home is sinking. Your childhood home is sinking. <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan Escoffrey, thank you so much for being on The Literary Life today. It's a real pleasure and an honor to have you here. And we're going to go off to a wonderful reading with a lot of these professors and friends that you were talking about in the next room. Yeah, I hope to have a, a wonderful celebration. It's been such an honor to sit here and talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you.